my name is Jace, and I am a very, very grateful member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm also a joyous member of the Worldwide Fellowship of the uh, Al-Anon Family Group. So I want to put a little shout-out. I'm the most fortunate man you ever met. I only have a couple of regrets since I came to you on the second day of May in 1979. And from that day till this... Although I've found it necessary on a lot of occasions, I haven't taken the front drink, sniffed any glue, or done any of those other things that I found to be so consoling. So uh, there is no hierarchy in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, uh, this is my story. Or this is actually the character named Jay's description of what's happened in this path through this dimension. And uh, so let's just let's just put the bar right there, <laughs> and then we'll see where we go from there. I live in Sedona, Arizona, where we we actually live in the fifth dimension, <laughs> and we refuse to po- apologize to tourists from Minnesota who come and are stuck in the third. <laughs> you know, there are things that happen to you in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're. Um, uh, they're interesting. One is that this is the first conference that I ever had where the chair of the conference came to my home and gave me a breath check. <laughs> you know, she heard it was Sedona. It might be a little... So, Amy, I want to thank you for, for your service. And <laughs> it was a wonderful time. I got to show my fabulous wife, Adele, who sends you her love and appreciates the fact that you were kind enough to invite her to uh, join me, and she wasn't able to. Um, and so I've been, and I've been well hosted. John has taken just extraordinary care of me. And um, so when you think about why is it that uh, we got 7,000 people coming to this, uh, it's that you care for each other very, very well, but you also care for your guests. So when you're paying your registration, know that, you're really allowing us to have an extraordinary experience. And it's, it's uh, the reason that we enjoy coming to the Gopher State Roundup so much. So thank you for that. Um, yeah, so, uh, Scott, thank you for the kind words. And there is no hierarchy in Alcoholics Anonymous. And... You were kind enough to describe me as an eagle, and, and I'm only there because I'm updrafting on this wonderful, wonderful, warm breeze of the spirit that I got introduced to in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm an active member, and I have the privilege of sponsoring people. And uh, if I do my job as a sponsor, they should be just a little bit more honest just a little more dedicated. And if I'm your sponsor, really well-informed. <laughs> but they should be better members of AA than I am because they benefit from the consciousness that I received when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1979. 
and the people that they sponsor should be better members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, when you hear Amy or you hear Scott or you hear some of these folks and, well, well they've only got eight years. Why are they speaking? Well, they, there's an aspect of their story that will lift the consciousness more. And so this is a really, really exciting time to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just want to uh, share with you that we had, a, I believe, a very, very important event happen at our general service conference this past year. And uh, in it, we uh, approved to adopt and adapt a pamphlet. And uh, I know you're all thrilled. Oh, another pamphlet. Just what we need now, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> but hopefully, as we grow in effectiveness and understanding, we are going to grow in our ability to communicate in clear, modern language this great gift that we've been given. And uh, how many of you have seen that? I'm just going to ask, have seen, not read, the, uh, the pamphlet, A Newcomer Ass. Yeah, Beautiful. Well, some people are looking at the rack. Good. Um, uh, the, that was developed by our friends in the United Kingdom, and then we voted to adopt and adapt it, and it's our third most popular pamphlet. So anyway, this pamphlet just has been uh, approved. It'll be out in a while. I don't know when. Um, but I want to read you a little thing. The name of the pamphlet is The God Word, Atheists and Agnostics in Alcoholics Anonymous. AA is not a religious organization. Alcoholics Anonymous has only one requirement for membership, and that is a desire to stop drinking. There is room in AA for all people of belief and non-belief. Many members... Many members believe in some sort of a God, and we have members that come from and practice all sorts of religions, but also many are atheists or agnostic. It's important to remember that AA is not a religious organization. We have a simple idea that there is a power greater than the individual. What we all have in common is that the program helps us to find an inner strength that we were previously unaware of. Where we differ is in how we describe it. Whatever you do, and this is to the people that are here that are new, whatever you do, please do not let someone else's religious beliefs uh, prevent you from finding the solution that is available to you through Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes! I am going to be able to make public amends for the next five years at least because I've been saying for years that the conference is too conservative to take a look at how we're reaching out to people and how we're responding. You know, the fact that we only have 38% Participation by women is absolutely unacceptable in my life. And when I joined you, it was only 28%. 
Now, how do I know that? I know that because of the triennial survey that we have, and I'll talk about that a bit later. But this is just a really exciting time, so make sure that your general service representative in your group is the smartest person you've got. Because, no, we need them. We need them. And so do everything that you can to encourage. And if you haven't been a GSR yet, get with the program. How are you going to know where you are if you haven't participated? It's just an opinion. It's a good one. And it should be (laughs) yours. Anyway, um, a little little ditty on that. Uh, So uh, I was living in my Pinto. (laughs) For the young people, this was a smart car that was developed by the Ford Motor Company. (laughs) For alcoholics. (laughs) Because it was highly flammable. Just like the contents. I was born in El Segundo, California, which, if you need a reason to drink, is as good as any. On the, on the north side of El Segundo is the Los Angeles International Airport. To the east, there are the uh, defense contractors. To the south, the second oil refinery in the state of California, whence the town got its name. And then... On the little patch of beach between El Segundo and the Pacific Ocean is the waste treatment plant for the entire county of Los Angeles. So toxicity is just a way of life. You want to get right with your environment. Now, as has been mentioned before, and I don't know if it's a dual diagnosis or what it is, but I was the short guy. I know if, I don't know if you remember the short guy. I can't throw the ball as far. I can't run as fast. But when I'm 12 years old, I find something that I can do better than guys that are bigger, tougher, and stronger than me. Metabolize beverage alcohol. <laughs> and when you're gifted, <laughs> you just got to go with it. Now, I didn't realize that, um, you know, like my family of origin, that I had this thing called alcoholism. And how do you know whether you got it or not? How do you know that you have a, a physical allergy? And uh, how, how do you know that you got a mental obsession? How do you know that it ends up being a spiritual malady? How do you know that when you're 12, 13, 14, and... There really is only one thing, and that's girls. And then anything else that you can load on the cart to go with it in your mental. So anyway, um, so by the time I'm 16 years old, I'm able to, uh, you know, my idea of a good time is to take a rack of reds to three high-powered sedatives, barbiturates, goofballs to you historians out there, and wash it down with a quart of spinata wine. Now, in 90% of the population, 
If they do that behavior, their brains actually start to shut down. Many times they forget to breathe, and they vomit and they aspirate on the on their vomit. With me, I'm looking for car keys and to make short-term romantic commitments. Which brings me to a second point about this, this malady that I, uh, more, others suffered more from than me, but, but this malady, this alcoholism, is that um, these things called blackouts. Now, I was a bartender for many years. That's why I'm such an effective sponsor, you know. Yeah, eat two of these, sniff some of that, drink this, talk to her. She likes this. Move along. Next. Um, uh, you know, and the ones that followed directions, they had a happy life for a while. Uh, but anyway, I, I, um, I was trying to be cute. Can you imagine? So if you've woken up with a life form with which you were unfamiliar when you left the house in the morning, you might want to look at your relationship with alcohol. Now, we're very fortunate that our book was written by people that had shell shock. The modern term is PTSD. Now, I would submit to you that in 90% of the population, waking up with somebody that you didn't know would be traumatic. (laughs) With me, I just developed coping skills. (laughs) You know, back in the day, we had to be warriors. We couldn't, like, hand them the cell phone and have them take a picture of themselves and put their contact information. You know, you had to give them a piece of paper find a crayon or something not sharp so they could, they could do it and, 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 and say, could you give me your phone number and pray that they would write their name down so that you knew what to call them, right? So, um, so I, I've got this alcoholism. Um, so one day I come out of a blackout And I'm on Castro Street in San Francisco, Uh, fabulous at the time, an an incredibly vibrant gay culture down there. And uh, I don't know what I was doing there particularly. And I kind of come up and I look and I've got a Rolling Stone magazine in front of me and a pack of Marlboro Hundreds and I've got a double tequila gold with a Schmirnoff, 100-proof screwdriver back, because you don't want to run out, even while you're at the bar. So make sure you order two survival skills. And, um, and I look to my left, and there's a man that was about 6'5 and about 360 in a pink tutu and a rainbow wig. And I look to my right, and there's a guy all dressed in leather, leather, and, um, but neither of us seemed to know each other, so 
I knew that things were good. <laughs> and I looked down, and there's the random notes, the gossip section of the, uh, the, the, the rag that I was reading, and it said that Warren Z had been hospitalized for alcoholism. And I thought, oh, my God, they got Warren. <laughs> he was one of these people who wrote some of the great hymns of the 70s. I'll sleep when I'm dead. Send lawyers, guns, and money. <laughs> Somebody that understands. So anyway, I get arrested a couple more times, and uh, I'm sitting having a vodka rocks with my father, and he says, um, he says, do you think you have the disease? And uh, I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, well, I want you to talk to somebody. You can go stay at my mother's house. And so I went down to my grandmother's, and I called this guy up, and he said, meet me at the Howard Johnson's in Culver City tomorrow morning. 7.30, don't have anything to drink. And don't smoke any of that crap either. How did he know? <laughs> so anyway, I vibrate into this place and I sit down and this guy starts talking about himself and talking about himself and talking about himself. And he had problems in his life and he met Alcoholics Anonymous and he didn't have any problems anymore. And he's talking about them. Forty-five minutes, and I'm just about to come unclued because you know he's not closing me, and I haven't had anything to drink yet today. And uh, finally, I realized that you know he's not closing me. I could be here for hours. <laughs> so I figure I'll prompt him, and I say, "Do I need psychiatric treatment? Do I need religious help?" Do I need treatment? And he looks at me and he goes, <laughs> he said, listen, trick. He said, if you or your family can get a hold of the three grand that it's going to take to put you in a 30-day program, go out and drink that money up. And when you're done, call Alcoholics Anonymous. They do it for fun and for free. And then the guy gets up and he says, if you want it, you're going to have to get it like you got your drugs and alcohol, punk. It's in the white pages of the phone book. Good luck. And he left. <laughs> he didn't even pay for breakfast. <laughs> and I went home to my grandmother's house, right? where all good gangsters end up, right? <laughs> the new large Harley Leather Queen comes rolling through the door at the Lilano Club. Where are you living? Grandma's. <laughs> She's a bitch. <laughs> She's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. We're familiar with all kinds. Uh, anyway, uh, I judge no person. I just divinely evaluate. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, 
I go back to my grandmother's house and I pour myself a water glass full of Davies County old-fashioned Kentucky bourbon with three ice cubes, and I knock that puppy down, and I called Alcoholics Anonymous, and at 12.30 I vibrated into a noon meeting in Manhattan Beach, California. And uh, when I walked, up the t- I walked in the door, the woman behind the coffee bar said, You, upstairs. Who knew? So I go toddling up these 12 steps into the clubhouse and, uh, or into the meeting room, and everybody starts talking at me. And I don't understand why they're talking at me. But you see, when I've been busy, uh, you can tell that I got my hair, I spent a lot of money getting my hair styled every six or nine months. And when my hair is long, I look like the Sphinx. And I haven't had enough to drink yet, and so I got the zup-zups going. And, uh, and when I light a cigarette, it looks like a napalm strike's been called in. And the third person that talked was a guy by the name of Butcher Joe. Now, you can always tell Butcher Joe. Joe Hacker. You can't make this up. (laughs) And Joe looked right through me, and he talked about when the family left, how he cried the big crocodile tears, and inside he's going, Yes! Now we can drink, and nobody's going to get in our way. I understood that. And uh, he told me that he knew just how deeply to cut himself so that he could get to the emergency room and he could stop and get the drink he needed along the way. I understood that. And because uh, I've been known when I need it to go into a bar and make a bet with the bartender and then we make a bet with all the... I, I run a game with the bartender and we run a bet with all the people at the bar, and what I'll do is I'll eat a beer glass. The third bite's fine. And uh, I haven't had to mutilate myself since that man looked at me and he said, you don't ever have to feel the way you feel about yourself ever again if you're willing to do what I've done. And that's why I'm here. That's why my wife packed me up and sent me off, is to carry that message, that you don't have to feel the way that you feel about yourself anymore. And I'm not just talking to the new person. I'm talking to folks that are in here that have some time, because over the time, uh, as was so beautifully said about returning to steps six and seven, I have had to go to other anonymous fellowships that had a language that described the problem that I was suffering from. And so if your relationship is kicking your ass, go to the family groups and keep your mouth shut for a year. See what you learn. Because they're not interested in your insights on the 12 steps. You came to them. Um, or if, um, or if you're in a situation where food's kicking your ass, maybe it's tobacco, 
Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's shopping. There are anonymous groups. I had to go to a meeting called Men and Money uh, in Debtors Anonymous. Why? Because I was raised by wolves. I had no guidance. And a lot of the trouble that I've been in in my life was because I didn't have any chops at that except my alcoholic upbringing that I knew to keep my mouth shut and just keep moving forward no matter what. So anyway, a miraculous thing happened at this first meeting. Some guys were going down to the Strand in Manhattan Beach to watch girls go by on roller skates and bikinis and play cards. I was introduced to spirituality and Alcoholics Anonymous very early. And they brought the new man along for entertainment. And they explained the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. I'd gotten at that first meeting that those people felt like I felt and they didn't feel that way anymore. So I identified that as alcoholism. And I got that I had to stay away from the front drink. But these clowns, when they explained AA to me, was like a scene out of Reservoir Dogs. (laughs) This is AA, kid, we don't use no dope here. I was horrified. (laughs) But I'd gotten that I needed to stay away from the front drink. So they explained to me that the reason that we didn't use medicinal marijuana was that sooner or later you were going to need to cut the cotton mouth and Pepsi's not going to get it. Now, if you're using plant medicine, I'm sorry, you you know, I know that there is stuff that is not psychoactive, so I'm not shaming anybody who's, who's taking care of themselves. But, um, but anyway, that for me, I'm smoking for something serious. And so, so sooner or later, I'm going to need a beer. Now, if I'm doing a little of that Peruvian marching powder, um, I'm going to need a double Bombay on the rocks with a twist just to take the edge off. And if you're being spiritual, you know, and you've dropped a little LSD, Does that look like the mothership to you? <laughs> Pass the mashed potatoes, Scott. <laughs> We've got some sculpting to do. Um, that cultural reference will only work for another couple of years. Anyway. Um, so anyway, um, they said that was drinking. Who knew? I never would have called that drinking. They told me that if I went to the pharmacy, because I had a cough, that if the cough product was sold with a shot glass on it, (laughs) I want to maybe check out the contents. Because I'm one of those guys, you put me in Idaho under blue laws, and it's, oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven, it's 
NyQuil, it's, oh, come on, honey, we'll just pretend it's cream de mint. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm, I've got this idea that, yeah, I got this thing and I have to stay away from the front drink. Now, in our literature, it says that the only therapy that we have for the alcoholic is that they cannot use it in any form whatsoever. So these guys also explained to me why is it that they call it non-alcoholic beer? Because it's not for alcoholics. <laughs> it's right on the label. It's got alcohol in it. And I don't mean to be this, you know, like spiritually evolved character from, from uh, Sedona, but I would like to share with you that many of the kombuchas that are out there have the same alcohol content as... And O'Doul's. So when you're sitting around having one to be social, I'd, I'd like you to just take a look at the doctor's opinion and take a look at your behavior. I'm not telling you to change your date over some stupid beverage like that. But are you being authentic to yourself? You know, I, uh, so anyway, that's just another little opinion. Good one. <laughs> Should be yours. Last thing I want to say about uh, the problem. Um, now, in Sedona, we get profound spiritual insights. And I had one about the difference between, I don't know what vortex I was on, um, between the alcoholic and the addict. And it all is best described in our relationship to carpeting. <laughs> now, hear me out. The alcoholic, we've been out for a couple of days. We get around someplace, and it's soft, and it's warm. It's carpeting. With the drug addict, carpeting is a never-ending source of hope and entertainment. For the senior members here, you know, if you're wondering why some of those kids are so jumpy, if you were smoking French fry bits, you might be a little strange also. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm stuck to this Naga Hyde couch smoking. I'd almost driven to the Stickenstein the night before, and, and uh, Larry got me a copy of the big book, but I'd been too, I, I'd been too uh, uh, busy to pick one up. I didn't want to look those first couple of days like I was going to Bible study. And so I, uh, I went home and I started reading it and sweating and smoking and walking and sweating and smoking and walking you know, I wasn't interested in that world war or that stock market crash. I blew through the fact that anything you want to know about the program is on page 11 and three paragraphs. Blew right through that. I didn't know what I was reading. I didn't understand it. It was written in a language which I could comprehend but which I could not embody. It was too unfamiliar with me. So... Anyway, and I keep going, and I get to the end of We Agnostics. Now, there are people who say that We Agnostics is poorly written. If you're withdrawing, 
it's really great, you know. The prosaic steel girder <laughs> whirling, you know. I understood that. And, uh, but at the end, there's a story, and it's Fitz Mayo's story. Fitz was the third guy that came in, uh, in New York, and he's got these resentments. He's got shell shock. His family hates him. He's lost all the money. His, his dad and his grandfather were both preachers, and you know how religious people are. And, and so he's going along, and, uh, and he gets approached by some guys, and they, they lay the good news on him about Alcoholics Anonymous, but there's this God stuff, and it just sticks in his throat. And he, uh, he gets down on his knees, and he says, the voice says, who are you to say that there is no God? I understood that. And uh, he gets down on his knees and says a prayer and has this big experience and and uh, was one of the foundational members in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so I did my thing. I got down on my knees and I said my prayer. And my prayer was, I don't know Jesus from Buddha. I don't know the Talmud, the Torah, the Upanishads. Just please get me the top. I will do whatever these dried up old geeks say to do. Just please help me not to drink. And I would submit to you that at that moment I'd done the first three steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The prayer was perfect. I'm with you this morning. And uh, so I'm, I, I go down the next morning to the Alano Club. I wasn't sleeping yet. I'm just sweating and smoking. And this woman walks through and she goes, she's got a black dress on and bun in her hair. And she's got, you know, correct shoes on. And she goes, oh, young man, you're new, aren't you? How can you tell? <laughs> she says, I can tell you the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous in four words. <gasps> what are they? Find God or die. Not that. Not that. Anything but that. 39 years later. That's like intellectually indefensible, isn't it? No drinking for 39 years? Bizarre. Anyway, um, 39 years later, I can tell you the secret of alcohol synonymous in four words. Find love and live. And when I say love, please don't hang on me what it is that your concept is. I'm talking about an experience that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. Dr. Bob said, we all know what love is. We all know what service is. Let's get with it. Um, so I go to these AA meetings, right? And I'm sitting at my home group. And this young woman comes in, and she's got a tank top on, and she's got about three pounds of metal in her face and sleeves. Got 90 days sober again. Oh, this is going to be wonderful. But I judge no group or no person. I'm just evaluating. And, uh, and she says, I was having problems with the third step. And my sponsor suggested to me 
that I turn my will and my life over to the care of love as I understand love. And I want to tell you that I had a profound experience of having all the steps come through my heart without any male or any adjective but love. And uh, if you want to have a little fun, try that on somebody. They're new. They don't know. Just try (laughs) stuff on them. Next time they say something like that to you, try, try using love in the book when you read with them. See what happens. Just for fun. Um, so, uh, this woman scared me to death, so I had to get a sponsor at the next meeting, right? I needed protection. And there was a guy that, uh, there was a guy that was, um, uh, Four years sober, he was taking a cake, and I asked him to help me. And uh, I'm an active AA member, and I will never, ever be able to repay that man and his al wife. Never. And uh, anyway, I started getting together with Mike, and uh, I was reading the big book, Unsupervised. You could do that in the 70s. <laughs> And uh, I got to this part where it said, if I don't do an inventory, I'm going to drink. And I ran to my sponsor's house, and I said, I'm going to drink. And he said, why? And I showed him the thing in the book. And he goes, oh, that. He gave me my, um, my fourth-step guide, two pieces of paper with a line down the middle of it. <laughs> he told me some disgusting things about himself. <laughs> he told me to go home and get really jacked up on coffee. This was before Starbucks, so it took some time. <laughs> Very complex. And, uh, and he said, take a look at the door and think about every place that you ever lived, every school you ever went to, every job you ever had. Think of your family members. And just think of it as a parade coming through the door. And anybody who's, uh, when they come through the door, if, if your stomach tightens, write their name down. Then you get three sentences, kid. Nobody's life's that interesting. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, who you're afraid of and who you hate, and, and uh, we'll get together tomorrow. Uh, I, th- I think I put him off until the day after tomorrow. But anyway, uh, I went home and I followed, I followed the direction. And so I wrote my first inventory when I was... 22 uh, days sober. Was it a fearless and thorough moral inventory using all four columns? No. No. It was the greatest hits. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is for alcoholics. It's not for um, scientists. The instructions are about this deep. And anyway, so I, I uh, you know, and, and isn't it odd? You know, somebody comes into AA, we go, oh, welcome to the life-giving program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're so glad you're here. Watch out for the inventory. 
as if the steps of recovery has ever hurt anyone. Ever. You know, if you've got some deep, dark secret, don't worry. You don't have to dredge it up. It will get in contact with you. It's like your defects of character. I wonder what they are. Just go to some meetings. You'll find out. So anyway, I get together with my sponsor. I read him the stuff, you know, and it's the stuff. What is it? It's the stuff that goes around and 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 around in your head. That's what needs to go on there. You know, the number of times, if you're interested in that, you can, you can, you know, but I've listened to these inventories where they just listed every single time they did it, you know. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I, 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 I get this done. He, we say a stupid prayer. We burn the thing. Where's your eighth step? Believe me, I know who these people are. And, um, and, I, uh, and I go out starting to make my ninth step. And I've got 24 days, and I am a fully vested member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And don't you ever let anybody tell you that you can get, you have to wait to get well. You can do this thing now. And another thing, if you're new with us, they told me something that I was just stunned by. They said, kid, this is the last time you ever have to withdraw. And I looked him in the eye, and I nodded my head like this, and inside I said, you don't know what you're talking about. And I want to tell you, they were right and I was wrong. This is the last time you ever have to withdraw. Think about that. Eighty-eight years ago, impossible. Eighty-eight years ago, you couldn't get this many people together in New York out of one of the missions that had been sober. Unbelievable. So anyway, uh, and I get off. When I had 28 days, my, the first guy asked me to sponsor him. I called my sponsor. Now, calling on the telephone in those days was interesting because you both had to be standing next to a wall at the same time. <laughs> It was amazing. And uh, I called my sponsor up. I said, what do I do? He said, you say yes. I said, really? He said, Jay, if they're sick enough to ask you for help, you can't hurt them. Each and every person in this room, there is a life that you are designed to touch and to save. And if, if you've been through this process, if you've looked the people in the eye who you've harmed and asked them, how do I make this right, you can save their life. Now, we know that it's the power working through you. It's just the character of you that seems to be flitting through the, the film. But 
you have a purpose that is beyond anything that people in social sciences, religious sciences, or medical sciences can do. Because here in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, if you ever get in a a, a conversation with somebody and they tell you AA is a lower form of spirituality, look them dead in the eye and move away. (laughs) Agree with them and say, yeah, great. I'll see you later. Um, Because they don't know. But you and I have the opportunity to go to the hospitals, to clothe the naked, to feed the poor, to go to the jails. We raise the dead. I don't care what anybody else calls it, but we restore that spark. Um, Cell phone. I'd like everybody here after the meeting, sometime today or tomorrow, I want you to take a look in your book selection. And I want you to take a look and see if you've got Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 and 12, language from the heart. Cost you about $34. And it's AA stuff. It's through Alcoholics Anonymous World Services. Check the people your sponsors' phones. Because a lot of people have these second-party apps that, um, that w- people pay for, and the money doesn't go to AA. It goes to somebody who's making money off of our fellowship. So I'd like to suggest that you do this, because one of the things that we need to be aware of is where we are financially. Now... Alcoholics Anonymous has never, ever been self-supporting. We have always relied on our publishing uh, income to um, cover the shortfall in contribution. And that's been from the gate. That's been from the gate. And just recently, because they've been making all these cuts the past 10 years at, uh, in the general service office, um, we decided that we were not going to fund the triennial survey, which is the only statistical analysis that we have to share with anybody in the industries. And allegedly it had to do with money. Now, there are two million members of Alcoholics Anonymous. If 2% of us went on our smartphone, put in AA.org, and said $10 a month, $10 a month to Alcoholics Anonymous for this life-giving program that we've been given. We could make Alcoholics Anonymous self-supporting for the first time in its history. This generation of alcoholics can do something that no other group of alcoholics has ever done, which is to be responsible for carrying this message. 120 bucks. We could do this by Detroit. We could do this by Detroit. So just a little activity for you. It's a good one.
I spoke about that every person in this room has the, uh, has the opportunity to save someone else. But every person in this room also has a contribution to make to this planet, to the consciousness of the people that are walking upon it. It's an incredibly wonderful gift. And after we get done working through those first steps, it's the great adventure that we have. Now, the great thing for me is that I've always been an AA guy. I was sitting in a meeting uh, at the Westwood. Uh, I only tell this story on Sunday mornings. But uh, I was sitting at this, the, this two-plus-two meeting, and a, and a gal was up, Liz Lepresti, and she was, she was talking, and she was talking about how alcohol removed everything from her that makes an animal or a person, a, a person and she was just an animal. And as I sat there with about six months of sobriety, the room went out. The room went white. And as I sat there, the first thought I had was, oh, maybe this is an LSD flashback. But I'd never had an LSD flashback. And my heart said, pay attention. And as I tried to sit there and pay attention, all that I felt was love. All that I felt was omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And I knew that I was known intimately and that everything about me was loved. And as I sat there, I, I came up with a question. Well, what about war? And I didn't, there weren't words, but there was a feeling. And the feeling was, don't worry. I got it. Don't worry. I got it. And uh, as I sat there in, in this incredible uh, peace that passes understanding, there are no words to describe it. Um, I knew. I knew. She was closing up her talk, and suddenly the room started to come back into shape, and there were three stained glass windows behind the podium. I said, God is love. That was the first thing that came into my into my, into my view. And I looked around and it was obvious that nobody had been on the bus that I was on. <laughs> so I helped put away the chairs. Over the next few days, I tried to talk to a few people about it. Nobody could hear what I was trying to say. And then finally, I looked up at a man and he was a professional God person and he said, uh, he said, I'd give anything for that. He said, but I've had six or seven parishioners over the years that they had a report, and the report was very, very similar. I know in a room like this, there's probably at least 25 or 50 that have had that kind of experience. So they exist. But having had that experience, what do you do with it? Well, I've stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't talk about this for my first 20 years because of the violent reaction I had from people in the beginning. And uh, 
But I've stayed active and involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I realize that when I start out my day that my only job is to love. That's the only job that I have. And when I say love, please don't limit me to what it is you think I'm talking about. But I'm talking about smiling at people. I'm talking about living in Arizona and having cold water that you hand to the people that are asking for money. I'm talking about having some kind of a traveling mitzvah when you leave the house every day. So how did a nice guy like me get in Sedona? I was living in Los Angeles. So this whole thing about, you know, um, five years from now, it will not matter who you work for, what you drive, who you sleep with. The only thing that will fundamentally change the nature of your experience of this life is did I meditate today? And if you're just staying on 11 and a half steps, I'd like to suggest to you that there's a dimension that is worth exploring. And uh, so anyway, I'm, uh, I'm asked to go to Sedona to give a talk. And, you know, I got the fly suit on, the whites hottied up, and, you know, and, and, I, and I give this talk. And when I, when I get down from the talk to go sit down next to my girl, the voice says, move here now. Now, the reason I meditate is to distinguish the voice from the voices. <laughs> and I go back and I sit down next to my girl and I go, baby, I just got told to move here. And she gives me a goofy grin and says, I got the same message this afternoon. And now I'm living in L.A. I sponsor all the great AA members. I go to all the proper meetings. And... <laughs> I come home and I take a walk and I go, I've had every wonderful opportunity a man could ever have in Los Angeles. Let's go do something else. And uh, she was uh, retired and I was underemployed at the time. And uh, (laughs) we tossed the keys to a realtor, headed our car east. Our friends thought a lunacy commission (laughs) should be appointed. So we move, we, we, we get to Sedona. It was six weeks between when we got the call and when we arrived. So it was really, we did it samurai style, burn the bridge, baby. And uh, you can tell how, how rock and cool my wife is, can't you? <laughs> and uh, anyway, we, um, uh, we get out there. And Sedona is... Uh, a very interesting thing. It's kind of like a woman. If she wants you, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you aren't willing to do the work, she'll kick you to the curb. And, uh, and so what happened was uh, we'd been there a couple of weeks, and we go to sell her house. And um, there's three liens of over $100,000 from a tax debt that I had that I was paying regularly in amends for. And I didn't know they could put a lien on the house, and neither did she. And, uh, and we blow up. You know, she says, you got to go back to L.A., you got to take care of this. Um, and, uh, and I end up on a sponsee's couch, literally 
10 days after I'd left on this spiritual adventure. And uh, I got a hundred and one-year-old grandmother that I'm responsible for. I got 500 bucks in my pocket. I don't have a car. It's nice to know talented lawyers. And I got a hold of one, and he was willing to help us a bit. And I get, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm with this guy, and I go to the meetings, and I tell the truth to the people that I need to tell the truth to, and... Uh, and I'm really, I'm, I'm really at an eight-year, at 35 years sober. And um, I get on the computer one more time to look for a work again. I'd been there for about seven days. I knew my shelf life was ending. And a job comes across the board to be a d- retreat director at a place in Sedona. And I had organized and led retreats for over 20 years. I felt like somebody passed me the dice. I'd make the call, go out, have the, have the interview. Now, you know you're not supposed to pray for yourself, right? Well, I'm not going to pray for myself, but I really need this job. Because <laughs> there's no work in Sedona, and I'm sitting there, and I, I meditate, and... And all of a sudden, this big blue heron goes, and locks eyes with me. And I knew that, don't worry, I got it. It may not be something that, it may not be this job. It may not be this wife. I mean, this woman was my muse. We'd written a a book together that's subtitle is A Field Guide to Spiritual Intimacy. And, uh, and we're, we're as far apart as we had ever been. And uh, anyway, I get the job. A buddy of mine, you know, for $200 down, gives me a car he couldn't sell to start. So 10 days after I left in shame and incomprehensible, I got a car. I got a job. I'm renting a room off Airbnb. Five days later, she comes out and we take a walk around the, uh, around the retreat center. And we were so far apart that even though she knew it was perfectly designed for me, we couldn't talk about it. Seven days later, they said, come down to the desk. Adele's left something for you. I was fearing the worst. And I came down and there was a dozen long stem red roses and it said, come home. It's time. I don't know what your life is going to be. I don't know what challenges you're going to surmount. I mean, my spiritual... I was just in India. And because somebody asked me to go and give a talk, I ended up at a place that I didn't think I was going to go. And I met coffee afterwards. And if there was any place I could have gone, it was to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. And... I find out over coffee that it's only a four-hour drive away. And I got to go and meditate in a cave that's been used for over 5,000 years for contemplation. I don't know what your dreams are, but dream deeply. 
You can do anything if you do this work, because what the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous give us is we get a chance in this dimension to totally reset the game. You don't have to wait till your next life to have an incredible experience in this one, and it's because of the restitution. So clear the decks, love each other fearlessly, and let's go have a really good time.